Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. In our first segment, we'll be speaking with Dr. Warren Strudwick, an orthopedic and sports specialist and former team physician for the Oakland Raiders. After that, we'll be joined by Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey, chief medical officer of the Kendron Community Health Center and author to discuss his new book, Intimate Partner Violence. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and past president of the National Medical Association. Let's go to our interview with Dr. Strudwick. Our special guest today is Dr. Warren Strudwick. Dr. Strudwick is an orthopedic surgeon. He's been in practice for over 30 years. After receiving a BA in biology from Brown University, Dr. Strudwick earned his medical degree from Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. His postgraduate medical training included both a residency in orthopedic surgery and an internship in general surgery at the world-renowned Stanford University. He later completed a fellowship in reconstructive surgery of the knee and sports medicine at the Jean Monnet University in France. Most interestingly, for 20 years, Dr. Strudwick served as a team physician for the Oakland Raiders. In addition, he served as the team doctor for the NBA's Golden State Warriors, University of California, Berkeley, and for Team USA Olympic track and field team as they trained and competed. Dr. Strudwick is the recipient of a number of awards from leading organizations. Dr. Strudwick, we're going through a very trying time now with the coronavirus pandemic. And that has a tremendous impact on sports, and particularly sports for young people. As a pediatrician, I struggle to give good advice to parents who ask, what should they be doing about their children in sports? Before we begin that discussion, I'd like to ask you, with all of the problems that the NFL has had in opening up and taking players out and quarantining other people, do you think they made a mistake in opening up the season? Oh, that's a very interesting question, uh, Mike. I think that um, there are many considerations with respect to that. On the uh, owner side, uh, I don't think that the owners uh, felt that they made a mistake uh, because there's so much there's so much at stake with respect uh, to uh, the football season, salaries, and money. The players, the NFLPA, they actually, uh, by majority, uh, voted to start the season. Um, we've had some complications during the season uh, with the protocols uh, that have been set up, and, and players have uh, tested positive uh, despite uh, the protocols. Uh, overall, uh, I think that they're performing at a level that's slightly underneath uh, what the NBA did. Um, so o- overall, I would say that they did not make a mistake uh, in having the season. Uh, they've been diligently trying uh, to uh, install the protocols and to respond uh, to uh, uh, all cases of the covid you know, Dr. Strudwick, when I hear this issue discussed, it's always about the fact that football is so woven in American culture that it will give the American people during the midst of this pandemic some sense of normalcy. What do you think about that argument? I don't think in the general American public that football has that type of normalizing power. I mean, football is a popular, popular sport. 
uh, but the majority the majority of Americans do not watch professional football. So I don't think the loss of a season uh, would have have uh, psychologically uh, had a mass effect on uh, America in general. Uh, America is missing a lot of things. I would not put football at the top of the list that most Americans would miss or are missing as a result of this COVID pandemic. Well, thank you for that answer. One of the reasons that we're having this conversation is that I, as a pediatrician and others who take care of children, are constantly being asked, even before the pandemic, should a young person play football? Well, I'll tell you, Mike, as a, as a parent of a seven- and an eight-year-old, and when asked whether I would let my children, my kids, my boys, uh, play football, I would emphatically say no. And uh, that's uh, considering uh, uh, my 30-year involvement uh, uh, with football on all levels, including high school, college, and uh, uh, pro football. I, I think that there there's some considerations and concerns when you think about the long-term effects uh, obviously, the short-term effects with injuries, but the long-term effects of, uh, of playing football. And uh, on the on on the youth side, uh, it, kids get injured, and if they get injured, uh, they can affect the rest of their life uh, significantly. And uh, you know, my concerns—I I have three concerns about it. Three concerns: concussions. Um, concussions have been a popular topic over the last few years, and the long-term effect of concussions, uh, I, I would be concerned about. Uh, on a youth level. Also, the long-term effect of uh, injury, uh, a knee injury, uh, an ankle injury, uh, a back injury, uh, a hip injury, a shoulder injury, those can have long-term effects and affect uh, how a person can lead their life uh, after football and even after youth football. And then there's an the issue of uh, chronic wear and tear. Um, how many, uh, what, what type of mileage are you putting on your body? And it's well known that uh, uh, the more mileage you put on your body, the more trauma you get to your body, even early on, uh, can affect your body later on in life. Decrease your uh, level of mobility, increase your chances of getting arthritis later on. And so it's an emphatic no for my kids. There are obviously some pluses uh, from uh, being involved in team sports, but I think that they can get that in other sports. You know, many people talk about the virtues of football and how it builds a team spirit, how it builds confidence, how it builds the ability to commit to something. But I think there are other sports that do the same thing. What do you think? You're right, Mike. Um, there are other sports that, 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 that you can get that sort of team spirit, that character building, that socialization. Uh, most of the people that are saying that they need football for that are usually football people, are usually people that have either played football or are totally committed uh, to that particular sport. Um, develop a tunnel vision, can't see the possibility of being able to develop that 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 same sort of socialization, uh, team spirit, character building uh, in any other sport. There's team sports that that are in the pool. There are team sports uh, that are on other fields like soccer, which which happens to have its own uh, problem with injuries. Also, um, there's rugby, there's hockey, there's basketball, obviously. Uh, most people don't consider basketball as being a contact sport, but I consider basketball a contact sport. But uh, certainly the types of injuries that you get in basketball are not the same that you get uh, in football. I think that uh, football is an easy sport to play uh, on a youth level. You get a team, a neighborhood team together, and you get another neighborhood team together, and you go to a field uh, with a football and you play. So it's a low-cost, easy entry into sports. 
And I think that on the grassroots level, uh, that's how the feeling about football uh, develops as, as the sport develop those type of things. But uh, I really believe that the, uh, through other sports, through other team sports, you can develop those qualities. You know, Warren, uh, when I was uh, maybe 12 or 13, I used to play a little sandlot football, throw maybe a 15-yard pass. I had the illusion that I was going to be able to play uh, in high school, maybe in college even. But it was clear there was one person in our group, Dr. Ronald Brown, who now lives in San Francisco, who was clearly so much better than we were, who had so much more talent and could do so many more things that it was obvious he was a much better, a much different athlete. It's very difficult. You have to have special characteristics to be able to make it to Division One or to the pro. Right. Well, well as you go up the ranks, there, there are certain aspects that an individual must have in order to, in order to make it. Less than 1% of players are going to make it to the, to the pro level obviously. And when considering youth sports, um, and we'll talk about this later maybe, uh, you just have to consider that the kids should play for fun, uh, mostly, unless they do have some recognized elite talent. So you've got these kids that have some natural ability, they have skill, and uh, sometimes that skill is on the elite level. Uh, then they have to have the type of social environment that supports their participation. They have to have the self-motivation uh, to continue to play. And then one factor that, 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 that comes into my realm a little bit is that they have to have bodies that are durable. There are countless stories of street athletes, playground athletes that were amazing athletes. There was this guy here in, in, in Oakland. Uh, his name was Hook. I mean, he could, he could jump over a car. Uh, he could dunk over anybody, but his failure was injury. The um, other sort of social social things that kept him from being an elite athlete. There's stories like that all over the country in playgrounds uh, from from Rucker in New York to playgrounds in Chicago, Milwaukee, and Miami. Players that uh, didn't make it because their bodies couldn't sustain. They had that natural ability. They had that innate skill. They had that motivation. But their bodies could not hold up year after year after year, going through youth sports, going through team sports in, in, in high school, team sports in college, and then trying to get it to the elite level. Uh, and even at the elite level, when we get to the pro level, there are players that enter into the environment whose bodies can't sustain the effort, and they fail. Uh, they get knee injuries, they get back injuries, they get wear and tear injuries, and they do not excel in those environments. So there are many different factors, but the ultimate factor is whether a, a person with elite skills and natural ability has durability. That's a very interesting point. Very seldom shared. The thing about endurance and durability as one of the key components to you making it uh, as an elite athlete. Well, one of the reasons we had our program is that as a physician who takes care of children, we're very much concerned about uh, what they should do and what parents should do uh, about sports, especially about football. And you have a very nice way of explaining the things that parents need to consider uh, before putting their children into sports. Could you share that with us? Well, it, it's, I call it the evolution of a baller. And uh, uh, everybody wants to be a baller. Parents want kids to be a baller. They want them to be good at sports. They want them to be, they want them to excel, uh, to raise their self-esteem. Uh, so I use the word baller. To be honest with you, uh, uh, most of the uh, 
youth sports injuries occur as a result of three factors. One, kids are playing one sport, and they're becoming exclusive in one sport and not doing any cross-training in other sports earlier and earlier and earlier. Uh, also, there's the intensity uh, of the practice, and also there's an elite mentality, the expectations uh, of uh, coaches and parents that, that uh, the kid is going to be a great player. Okay? So, um, started thinking about this, and I use the word baller uh, to caution parents and caution coaches as to, um, you know, what, what principles should be adopted uh, to prevent uh, both injury uh, to youth athletes and also burnout, because burnout is a huge factor with youth, youth athletes. If they're considered to be elite early on, uh, a lot of athletes burn out by the time they get to high school. Uh, and there's a, a huge drop-off in high school with these athletes. So the first letter of baller is B, and that means be reasonable. Uh, limit your child's participation uh, to uh, one team per season. Uh, don't go on the high school team, the traveling team, the AAU team, but limit the participation to one team per season. And then have the kid take two to three months off per year uh, from sport. Uh, let them have some, have some fun doing something else. There's no evidence uh, that uh, young children will benefit from early uh, sports uh, specialization uh, in the majority of sports. Uh, so most of the kids, uh, most, of the, most of the guys who are in professional sports like football uh, and um, basketball, they've done, they did other sports coming up. They, they were exceptional athletes probably in multiple sports. So there's just no evidence that, that, that having your kid play one sport uh, and the chance for burnout playing one sport is high. So the A in baller, activity restriction by age, such as no tackling in football, no heading in soccer, no body checking in hockey uh, until about the age of 14 or 15. That's r relatively relatively clear. The L, first L in baller, limit the hours of play and repetitions. Um, we all know that um, youth baseball um, there are um, pitchers who throw out their elbows um, really early on in their careers. Uh, so now, uh, uh, recently, of course, there's limitation uh, of the number of pitches, of the number of throws um, by age. Uh, and uh, there are algorithms, and you can find them online, that tell you how many pitches by age a person should be uh, throwing uh, in any given setting. So you set standards for the number of throws, the number of pitches, number of runs and the number of jumps uh, depending on on age uh, the second the second L in baller means listen to your kid listen to your kid your, your kid's going to tell you whether they're in pain or whether they're hurting and anytime someone's in pain it is not normal it's not normal for ankles to hurt it's not normal for knees to hurt it's not normal for an elbow to hurt it's not normal for a shoulder to hurt now there may not be an injury uh, as such but you want to listen to your kid when they tell you, when they part of my body's hurting. And then you want them to stop. At a youth level, you want them to stop. And you want them to maybe do an alternative activity uh, that doesn't cause them pain. Say like uh, if someone's playing football and they have a knee injury and you want to keep them fit, uh, put them on a bike. Uh, put them in the swimming pool. But do something alternative. Have the kid listen to their body and you listen to your kid. We're down to the E now in baller. 
We want to eliminate the elite level mentality. And youth sports uh, these days, uh, I mean, obviously youth sports provides a foundation for future high school, college, and elite uh, sports participation. But most kids are not going to go to that level. And we want to eliminate that early on because that mentality can cause significant burnout. You've got recruiters that come into AAU sports early on and in youth sports early on. You have exhausting practices because the coaches, uh, the parents, they want to, uh, their kids to reach their maximum potential uh, early on. And this elite uh, uh, mentality has an effect on, on the kids. As I said, there's a, a drop-off in high school uh, uh, because of burnout, uh, because of this elite mentality. We don't want coaches to be trying to live out their dreams of sports elitism, and we don't want parents to do the same. So we want to eliminate that uh, elite-level mentality. And that um, feeds into the last thing, which is R. Remember, be physically active and to have fun. We can't take the fun out of sports. We've got to keep the fun in sports, keep the kids motivated to want to participate uh, in their activities. So that's the evolution of the baller, and those are my recommendations. They're really very simple and straightforward uh, for parents to follow if they want to keep their kids from getting injured. So let's go back to the word baller again and identify what the letters mean. B means be reasonable, limit child's participation. A, uh, activities restriction by age. The first L, limit hours of play and repetitions. The second L, listen to your body. E, eliminate the elite level mentality. And R, remember why kids play, to be physically active and to have fun. Dr. Strudwick, one final question. You know, this is a very special time with this pandemic. What are you recommending for parents who want their children engaged in sports during this period? Well, I, I favor I favor individual sports, um, such as uh, swimming, biking, uh, where you can you know socially isolate, so, socially distance yourself. I do see youth sports. Uh, I do see soccer's uh, uh, teams playing. I see uh, uh, football teams playing. Uh, Many times the kids are not wearing masks. Many times the coaches are not wearing masks. Um, there is some ad admonition about uh, maintaining social distance, but I don't see that being done. So uh, uh, on a safety level, I would recommend individual sports. Uh, uh, if you're uh, bound to do team sports, I would remember uh, that the way to stop the spread of COVID uh, is to wear a mask uh, and to socially distance and to make sure that you're outside. Well, Dr. Strutter, thank you for taking the time to join us on this edition of Black Doctor Sleeps Podcast. A lot of really good advice, very helpful to me as a pediatrician for guidance, very helpful to parents. Much of this information, especially the baller acronym, will be on our website at aawellnessproject.org. Thank you, Dr. Strudwick, for that great insight. Hopefully, we all keep the baller system in mind when we are making sports decisions for our children. Now, let's switch gears and speak to Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey about his new book. Our special guest today, who has been our guest on a number of occasions, is Dr. Ron Kennedy Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a native of Texas, the past chair of the Department of Psychiatry, Behavioral Medicine, Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center, and Meharry Medical College. 
formerly he serves as the director of the Elam Mental Health Center in Nashville and was president of the National Medical Association. Most recently, Dr. Bailey has been appointed assistant dean of clinical education at the Charles R. Drew University in Los Angeles. He is appointed the chief medical officer of Kedron Community Health Center. Dr. Bailey, welcome to our program. Well, hi. Thanks so much for having me today. All right. You wrote a book on intimate partner violence. Uh, domestic violence is a part of that. Tell us why you wrote this book. Well, I think for a few reasons. Uh, first and foremost, I had written a book on gun violence a few years back, published in 2018, and it was striking to me how often when you look at issues regarding gun violence, concerns regarding domestic violence or intimate partner violence came into play. Most think of having a gun to protect themselves against someone who they don't know, a stranger, a villain, a criminal, a burglar. But very often the persons who are victims of gun violence are intimate partners. That's a piece of, of an aspect that I think many Americans are not aware of. But there was more. Uh, as an African-American psychiatrist for the last 25 years now, uh, finished training, uh, all too often these are issues that are disproportionately adverse and negative in the African-American community. Uh, too many guns, too often the guns are used to settle conflict, and much too often are guns used to settle conflict between intimate partners, married couples, or, uh, or domestic um, uh, relationships. So I think that both, for both those reasons, uh, it was a, a reason for, I think, an African-American psychiatrist to take a deep dive, look at what the data shows, uh, and try to really bring to fruition some considerations that might allow us to make some recommendations going forward for the future for these communities. You use the term interpartner violence, both as the title of your book and in your discussion. Why not just domestic violence? Well, I think that the interpartner violence component is a little different. Um, many are not aware that the domestic violence does speak to anybody that lives essentially in the same home, and therefore um, we, we very often protect ourselves from outsiders by locking the door, keeping the windows shut. If someone who lives in the home with you has open access to you uh, in much more of a way that uh, limits your uh, safety from them. But an intimate partner is even different. There's someone who's in the home with you typically, but you have a personal, um, intimate-oriented relationship, the type that makes some persons act very differently toward others. At times, uh, because of jealousy and envy, uh, we act differently toward those who are involved in an intimate you know, marital or otherwise relationship with someone. I think also at times we'll see behaviors by persons that are strikingly different than how they would normally act. We're all aware of the concept that uh, if a person is very angry, they may throw hot grits on you. That type of thing comes out of the idea that if a person has an intimate relationship with someone and then they become angry, their response may be much more extreme and even more violent than it would have been in a normal circumstance. Those are key issues, I think, for this book. Uh, there are some preconceived notions about uh, the risk factors. What are the risk factors for intimate partner violence, and does racism specifically play a role? Yes, a variety of risk factors. Uh, clearly, I think some persons have a inherent insecurity of their own that um, unfortunately leads to them being more often being victims of this type of IPV or intimate partner violence. In addition to certainly some individuals who have been victims of other forms of uh, violent acts uh, that also have uh, an additional degree, present an additional degree of risk of victimization. Clearly, uh, in certain s settings, 
there's the duality of what we call SUD or substance use disorder. Alcoholism is a good example that when compounded with these other variables, increase the risk of intimate partner violence in these settings uh, very commonly. And I'd also add that to your last question, clearly uh, it is correct that we see more intimate partner violence in African-American communities than other communities. Uh, that there are certain demographics that might increase the risk, uh, being lower SES or socioeconomic status, having less uh, money or resources, uh, does lead to a more violence in these type of areas. It's not the only case. I think in addition, uh, having a history very often of having fewer resources to manage conflict. Fewer persons in the AA or African community uh, go to a psychiatrist or a mental health professional for talk therapy or psychotherapy, for example, the kind of strategy that very often modifies or minimizes the risk of intimate partner violence by finding another avenue to address uh, conflict resolution. So the other variables as well, but I think those are two key reasons why we do see more IPV in African-American communities. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me in reading this book, you know, there's a lot of intimate partner violence uh, in middle-class and upper-income families. Absolutely. Actually, we a chapter about that, uh, described it as a upper SES scenario. Uh, you do see that in um, varying groups, but much more so in non-African-American communities. In fact, I neglected to mention in my earlier answer that one other reason we see a lot more IPV in African-American communities can be this increasing disparity in uh, financial status between African-American men and women. And we see this in other areas of the world as well where there's cultures in which if uh, men are not the dominant uh, financial um, um, leader of the family, they may very often bring home uh, anxiety and, and turn that into, into animosity towards their intimate partner and at least a lot more IPV. On the other hand, when you see settings in which individuals have more um, fiscal status, more middle class status, um, more education, you know, better jobs and more routine income, uh, we often don't see as much IPV in those settings, but you can see some. Uh, a fair amount of it is not strictly your typical dynamic violence. A lot more of it is economic violence. A fair amount, much more of it, I think, is uh, verbal or uh, emotional neglect and abandonment. Those type of areas we, we see a lot more of, and I think we're doing a better job in psychiatry identifying and calling those issues out rather than thinking if it's not physical violence or someone has a a black eye or a broken bone or a bloody nose that is not IPV uh, altogether. We're talking to Dr. Ron Bailey, a nationally recognized expert on psychiatry and former chair of two departments of psychiatry currently based in Los Angeles. His book, Independent Partner of Violence. In your research, Dr. Bailey, did you ever see, do you see any commonalities in the childhood experiences of those both who abuse or who are victims of abuse? Uh, yes, certainly. I think that the uh, research um, made it very clear that uh, individuals who have been victims of child abuse clearly present uh, a substantial increased risk of intimate partner violence, I think, than others. And it's not only child abuse uh, in general. Very often it's child abuse by those who are authority figures that is so important for an individual in a role of authority, someone's mother or father or primary caretaker, to have a normative uh, dynamic relationship with uh, a young person, a child, because that relationship very often tends to um, set up, I think, the scenario 
or how that child, uh, as they become a, uh, an adolescent or a young adult, is likely to indirectly pick partners who, who, who engage with them. So an example would be if your parent or the person taking care of you uh, is violent toward you, your tendency, very often even if it's subconscious and not done on purpose, may be to pick someone else to be in an authoritative role with you or over you as an intimate partner who's likely to be violent towards you. Uh, it's really a, a most unfortunate characteristic, but to your point, the data does support it. Dr. Bailey, when you approach a couple who has a problem with interpartner violence, there must be some commonalities in the way you approach both the, the diagnosis and the management. Yes, there certainly are. I think that um, there are, as you point out, um, pretty stark differences in some, but I think more commonalities than differences. And I think the commonalities include, A, first and foremost, uh, this idea that persons who are victims of interpartner violence very often feel powerless and helpless to change the circumstance. So one thing we do as uh, practicing clinicians, as you say, to go about trying to help engage in the development of some strategies to improve their lives and their lifestyles and decrease their risk of uh, further harm and even uh, mortality or death, is to work to address that issue of powerlessness and really just a lack of any resourcefulness to make effective change in their own life. Many just feel like they're in a, a blind, you know, dead-end situation, and they can't move in any particular direction. Maybe that their primary caretaker is the one that's hurting them, or that that's been the only relationship they've ever already had, or some others in their family like this particular relationship, and there's some secondary gain. Uh, what if you married someone, for example, and that person had a business, and they hired your relative, your brother, for example, and you know if you lost the relationship, then also your brother would lose his job, take care of his family. Those are the kinds, I think, of examples that we tend to see that promote the continuation of an ongoing uh, negative and potentially at-risk volatile relationship. But there are other factors as well. I think that when resources are available, we clearly do see individuals who are victims of intimate partner violence not use them at all or not use them well. Uh, we all know about these hotlines. You can call the hotline and you can have somebody kind of come and uh, get you and take you to a safe place. I think most Americans would be very surprised at how rarely individuals use the hotline or when the hotline, they get them on the phone, they just hang up or they don't tell their whole story or they don't follow the recommendations or the person on the hotline tells them to do to move away from the dangerous situation where they are in the home environment or what have you to a safer situation, so they probably become psychologically dependent on the circumstance, although it may be a violent and a dangerous at-risk circumstance for them. A third example I give very often is the use of law enforcement. You know, in every one of our 50 states and jurisdictions, law enforcement are trained when they get a phone call to um, um, attend to a domestic violence, excuse me, a important violence circumstance in a more effective way. And typically what you have to do is you have to uh, move the two individuals away from each other. So somebody has to leave the home. And part of the problem may often be that that happens if someone presses charges. So if the person is a victim, in this case perhaps the uh, weaker person physically of the two, who may actually be the smaller person, very often the woman, that person, although not always, that person will be a lot more likely to, uh, if they're um, empowered, to press charges and allow law enforcement to force the other individual, the more powerful one, the perpetrator of the violence, they have to leave. But if they don't press charges or if they downplay the situation or if it was all a misunderstanding or my mistake, then law enforcement loses its ability to engage in some effective change. 
three key examples, I think, of exactly how this process is allowed to continue or be perpetuated and not to allow the resources that are available uh, to help someone move away from, move towards safety. Well, I was reading in the paper about people who are seriously injured or even killed by someone that they have tried to get rid of and reported to the police and and have, you know, just done all the things that they could do to avoid that particular individual. And yet that individual is freed and comes back um, to harm them again. That's a great point. I mean, that can certainly happen. I, I think that um, those issues are very are, are tragic for one item. Um, I'm a forensic psychiatrist by training, so I'm aware of some of those scenarios of directly of myself in cases that I've been involved in. In addition to being tra- tragic, very often they're so unfortunate when there may have been an opportunity, again, to um, make um, the, the type move that would be required to move the person who's being victimized uh, into safety. Uh, I, I do think that several issues are in play. Uh, clearly, the person who's the perpetrator or the perpetrator of the violence very often didn't just start yesterday. Very often there's a cumulative long-term effect that starts off with small elements, very often of nonviolent disrespect, you know, emotional abuse, uh, yelling and screaming, you know, uh, financial um, changes, alterations in how money is shared. Uh, sometimes it's um, minor violence, you know, pinching versus hitting, uh, pushing versus, uh, you know, using weapons or what have you, and then it gradually escalates or grows over time. I think the other issue is that all too often there's a third-party network. Uh, let's say it's a man or a woman involved in the conflict. Uh, very often their relatives may know, their neighbors may know, their friends may know, their coworkers may know, and the other people in the circle all too often do not engage in effective action that's uh, demonstrative and specific to create change. Uh, either they uh, make excuses for the perpetrator, they'll say, oh, well, that person, uh, he, for example, was just having a bad day. Or, you know, you uh, shouldn't um, uh, stimulate him in that way. Or he only acts that way when he gets too much to drink or what have you. So the other individuals create this uh, cocoon of safety for the perpetrator that allows them to continue and for the escalation to, to grow. I think in addition, one of the other problems is that uh, the individual themselves may lose their esteem. This is the perpetrator. They're often the man in the setting, and they may think that but for keeping their life exactly the same, same place to live, same spouse, for example, same job, same life, same strategy of, of uh, how they live, that everything is, is not worth living. So they may make a decision that is worthwhile hurting someone, even unfortunately sometimes killing someone, rather than making any changes in their life. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I spent 25-plus years in psychiatry, and everything about what we do is to try to create some effective behavioral change. It's hard to get people to change, but you certainly want to change away from a bad behavior, one that you don't want to continue, to a better one. And in these settings, very often, if that person says they don't want to make a change, the one who's being victimized must leave. And they must leave more than just temporarily and more than just in a, in a short space of time. It probably is a full disconnect in every way, financially, housing, communications, family, holidays, et cetera, children, et cetera. Otherwise, the, the continued exchange puts the, the, the historical victim at continued risk. And, and it's tragic when you see it happen. Dr. Ron Bailey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the book, Intimate Partner Violence, is almost a treatise on the problem in our communities right now. Uh, your perspective as a as a chief of the psychiatry of um, several different departments, your perspective as an African-American psychiatrist, 
uh, gives this book a certain um, value to those people who are interested in this subject. It's not just for a consumer to read, but it's almost a treatise uh, for experts to read to expand their base of knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Dr. Bailey, for joining us. You can pre-order your copy of Intimate Partner Violence right now on Amazon. That's all the time we have for today. I hope you all enjoyed today's show and that you'll share this episode with your friends and family. Remember, Black Doctor Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctor Speak on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and at Black Doc Speak on Twitter. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, iHeart, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.